and welcome to episode 16 of Expected Value, the podcast that takes you inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media, and today's guest is Eric Eager, senior data scientist at Pro Football Focus, commonly known as PFF, and co-host of the PFF Forecast podcast. As Eric will discuss, he writes for PFF's website, collaborates with their team clients, and uses his academic background to analyze PFF's various data, metrics, and grades. Eric was also at Sunday's AFC Championship game in Kansas City, so we'll talk about the two conference title games and look ahead to the Super Bowl. Eric will go into lots of details about what PFF does and his role there, how teams use PFF data and other analytics, his career path through academia to PFF, and what he tells people interested in the data science field. Then Albert Larcata will join me to react and wrap things up. So without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with PFF's Eric Eager. We're joined now by Eric Eager, Senior Data Scientist at Pro Football Focus. Eric, welcome to Expected Value. Before we dive into the numbers, you were at Arrowhead when the Chiefs won the AFC title on Sunday. Tell me what that experience was like. I was unlike anything at a sporting event I've ever been to. Um, you know, growing up in Minnesota, there were no Super Bowls in Minnesota. Um, and there were no NFC champ. I, you know, the Vikings lost the NFC championship game on my birthday, I think three times, uh, before. So, uh, you know, it was very strange. And even, you know, I've been a Chiefs fan for about a decade now. And, you know, even though I don't have some of the, the scars that a lot of those folks have, um, I can certainly relate to them having seen, you know, a few tough losses, including last year. So the, the sense of relief, the sense of joy, it was good that the game sort of was decided more or less with about a half a right. quarter left so that folks could kind of like run around and, you know, have fun and prepare to, to celebrate. It, it was it was surreal. I live about an hour from Kansas City, so uh, just surrounded by Chiefs fans, obviously. it's It's been a lot of fun to see the joy and, and the happiness kind of spread from this. So you've had a couple of days to kind of digest now and look at the numbers. What Did you have any stat takeaways that from this AFC title game that uh, you really kind of pulled? Maybe you didn't see in the moment, but you've kind of seen looking back at what happened. Yeah, it was the, the Chiefs' path to um, success in the playoffs was two different things. In the, in the first uh, in their first game, in the second round of the playoffs, um, you know, the, the Titan or the Texans, sorry, put in like, you know, press man and they really try to take mm-hmm. away the Chiefs wide receivers. Um, and then Travis Kelsey was, you know, prolific over the middle of the field. He had 10 catches on 13 targets, three touchdowns. And a lot of that damage um, was done in the 10 to 10 to 19 yard area for the Chiefs. Um, and in the game on Sunday, Mahomes was almost perfect throwing the ball over 20 yards downfield. And almost perfect throwing the ball between 10 and uh, zero and 10 yards downfield. But the Titans actually did a pretty good job of, you know, taking Travis Kelsey out of the game. And ultimately it didn't matter, right? It, it ultimately Mahomes is able to find guys underneath and they were able to make plays after the catch. And a few times he was able to go deep. Uh, the last of which was the, uh, you know, Sammy Watkins touchdown, but also the McCole Hardman pass interference penalty. So yep. when the chief, when the chiefs get stopped in one way, uh, they've built such an effective and such a diverse offense that you can almost never keep them down, even if you you are effective in taking away what is perceived to be their primary uh, you know objective. So I know you obviously weren't at the NFC game, but you've caught up with it by now. Anything from that title game jump out at you between the Niners and the Packers? 
it's amazing how having fast running backs can, you know, can help a team. And, you know, we, we always talk about how, you know, running backs, the, the difference between, you know, running back A and running back B is generally not particularly big. Uh, or if you look at the objective function, which is, you know, efficiency, uh, you know, you can get you can get varying levels of running back talent to get the same output. Um, and, and we saw that Raheem Mostert, he had 151 yards, at least the, the t- when I was checking right after the game. He averaged almost six yards per attempt after contact. Uh, so, wow. And a lot of that is sort of interesting when you look at the analytics because he wasn't being contacted hard. He was just running through arm tackles in those alleys. Uh, and, you know, over you know over 150 yards, I said, of his 220-odd yardage was after contact. It sort of shows when you can get a running back in space and have him move quickly – uh, he can break a lot of tackles and not only that gain yardage after the uh, after the initial contact. All right, so we're set up for a Super Bowl now, Chiefs 49ers. Any particular angle from your early research that you're going to keep an eye on for this matchup? Well, it's tough because you know the 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 way in which the 49ers won the first two games of the playoffs uh, for them is probably not going to be the way that they're going to win the play, you know the games this uh, this time around. Uh, I, I I look at the Chiefs secondary, their back seven. Uh, and, and look at the 49ers, you know, skill position players. And I think they match up very similarly. You know, the, the Niners have one elite superstar in George Kittle, a guy who won our Stevenson Award today for the best, uh, highest graded player in the NFL. Uh, and the Chiefs have Tyron Matthew, uh, a player who, you know, they signed in free agency, has been a, one of the best additions, you know, in the NFL. And beyond that, the, the Chiefs don't really have another you know, superstar player in the back seven. And the Niners don't really have another superstar player in their, you know, skill position groups. Um, but they, but both groups are sort of, you know, just good enough with, you know, the roles that they're asked to play. So Debo Samuel has been a very good secondary player. Travarius Ward's been a great corner for the Chiefs, you know, unheralded, you know, undrafted last season, but has been good there. So I think that that matchup in the passing game, where you have one superstar against another superstar and a bunch of really good uh, complimentary players will will be a fun thing to watch. Yeah, I agree. Especially, obviously, the focus is on the Chiefs' offense and the Niners' defense because those are the exceptional units, and clearly, those other two could decide this game just as easily. How good, from what you can tell, do you think this Chiefs' defense is? It seems like they've improved over the latter half of the year. Uh, what do you think about where that defense is at? Yeah, I, you know, last season it was a it was a defense that you had to win despite of, and, and um, it's amazing when you know you look at old research by Brian Burke or you know some of the stuff that that we've been trying to hack away at, and it's it's really the defensive coordinator is the most valuable player of a defense, and just by moving from Bob Sutton and his sort of press man, frankly uncreative, you know, front seven play to Spagnolo's, you know, even front zone, uh, you know, kind of take what the offense gives you, tackle, uh, you know, that change has really been good for the Chiefs. And it was, you know, gradual, you know, when when they were you know, starting off the playoffs, the, the Texans, the Titans and the uh, Ravens were the three teams left besides them. And they, had, they gave up an average of 207 rushing yards per game to those three teams. Those rushing offenses were not a factor in the two games yeah. of the three that they got to play against those two teams. So they've really done a good job of, uh, of addressing problems in the Sunday night football game against uh, against the Green Bay Packers. Their linebackers gave up an enormous number of yards uh, to Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams. Since then, they've done a good job of putting you know safeties essentially on running backs and have, you know mitigated a lot of those problems. So. Uh, to me, it's just they've done such a good job of improving schematically over the course of the season that some of the talent that is there uh, ha- has really shown out. Tano Passingo, for example, is a second-round pick out of Villanova. 
basically a non-factor his first two years with the Chiefs. He had a bunch of pressures, including two sacks the other day on Ryan Tannehill. What about this 49ers defense? I mean, we know, obviously, they were really good the first half of the year, and then I don't know if tailed off is fair, but maybe leveled off a little bit the second Mm -hmm. half of the year. What do they do so well, and how do you see just kind of where they're playing right now entering this last game? Yeah, you know, I think early in the season, it was very much a, you know, why defense can lead you astray in projections because, you know, they had faced Mm -hmm. a lot of easy offenses uh, against and then they were healthy. And then, you know, the things that can happen to a defense, which they get unhealthy and they face better offenses uh, happened. And so the first eight games were, you know, relatively, you know, very good. And then the last eight games were relatively average. We've seen them get healthy again in the playoffs and that seemed to have shown you know, Jaquiski Tart coming back from injury, Kwan Alexander coming back, E Ford. You know, for me, it's just that they don't really have a weakness. Uh, you know, Akella Witherspoon was taken advantage of by Minnesota in the first half of the divisional round. He was immediately pulled for Emmanuel Mosley, and, and their defense didn't really have, other than some garbage time plays, any problem stopping a Green Bay offense. So, uh, you know, they're just they just don't really have a weakness. They cover well, and that allows their pass rush to get home quick, more quickly. Um, they get quick pass rush, which allows their coverage to be a little bit better uh, as well. So they just kind of do a lot of things well. And both teams tackle, you know, both teams don't miss a whole lot of tackles in space. Uh, and that's another thing that, you know, I think when you when you look at the Chiefs, like they're going to have to earn every yard. And that hasn't always been the case uh, for them in the past. You mentioned the opponent adjustment of the scheduling, how that's a factor. It kind of makes me wonder, how do you decide you know, when and how to factor in the opponent adjustment when you're trying to uh, put these numbers together and determine the quality, whether it's a player or a team or a unit? Yeah, it's tough because in the NFL, you're dealing with such small samples. And so, you know, oftentimes when you adjust for opponents, you can really adjust um, for what ends up being noise or circumstances. And oftentimes, interesting thing about football is sometimes some of these circumstances are more stable uh, than their actual play, <laughs> you know? So sometimes you, you obscure how good a team or a player is by adjusting for opponent. But, you know, if you, if you do such a thing, you, you kind of have to do a combination of what your internals say and what the market says. So for example, when I adjust for opponent, when I project from college to pro, I often will use the preseason betting projections for, uh, their opponent going into the season or game. Uh, and, and, okay. you know, using some sort of, you know, regression, uh, it, usually it's a regression will do for you sort of like taking their difference from what was expected. Uh, and, and that'll give you some predictive power, especially in the college to pro realm where you're literally playing a different game. Speaking of kind of the betting thing, I know on your PFF forecast podcast that you guys get into the gambling lines and, and prop bets and something, anything you particularly like early on here for the Super Bowl line or a prop or anything? Yeah, it's it's unfortunate that the that the totals have been bet up so much, but early on you were able to get you know uh, Chiefs over twenty seven, uh, basically at minus one ten as a team total. I like that a lot. I think now it's twenty seven and a half minus one thirty. So uh, there have been you know book you know bookmakers on the you know Twitter saying they haven't taken one under bet yet. Uh, <laughs> you know at fifty four right now it might look like a a solid place to to consider an under uh, if you really buy into the Chiefs uh, and Forty ers defense. Uh, being what, you know, the, the prognosticators have thought they are. But as far as, you know, looking at where inefficiencies could be, I think that the 49ers past few games are really going to help people if they if they are considering an over for Jimmy Garoppolo. So I've seen somewhere where, you know, his uh, completions number is 19 and a half. Last week, Tannehill was 17. Uh, and we saw what happened. He went over that total relatively easily because the Chiefs, eat their Wheaties too and they have to play you know they have to play from behind or play from straight up 
and you know they have to pass to do so. I think the Niners will also do that. I've I've seen his yardage total at you know two thirty nine and a half. Um, you know, I think I think that goes over Manuel Sanders at forty and a half for receiving yards. Um, if you like the Chiefs, you might and in for example, you bet the Chiefs like minus a point, minus a point and a half. Maybe a, a nice hedge is also to bet the 49ers, you know, receivers overs and, and Garoppolo, because if if the Chiefs, you know, if the game works out the way that you think it does, the Niners are going to have to throw and you could get both bets to hit. I like it. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. I want to shift gears and talk about pro football focus, kind of what they do, uh, what you do there. So I think most people listening to this probably have at least a general sense of PFF, whether it's you know from TV broadcasts or uh, digital outlets, things like that. But give me kind of the elevator pitch, if you will, on what PFF does and how they help teams, media, et cetera. PFF has been around for about a decade now, you know, a little bit over. And, you know, early on, it was about, um, you know, hobbyists who really wanted to uh, understand the game better and collect different types of data. And um, from its inception, it's always, you know, mostly been about the grades, um, you know, where so we'll chart somebody, every single player on every play on a scale from negative two to two in increments of 0.5. Um, you know, for example, a quarterback throwing uh, a perfect pass on a curl route on third and 10 for first downs, a plus 0.5. Whereas if he hits a post pattern between two players uh, right on the money, it might be a 1.5, uh, it, you know. And, and so we we have somebody charting every single player on every single play. Um, those things get aggregated up and, and spun out in a zero to 100 framework for the consumer. And then for us internally, we get them as, again, the raw data that where we can sort of uh, adjust them and, and create new metrics out of them, um, and and that's and, and that's really where it's it's been kind of fun because now you know we have all 32 NFL teams are clients, uh, about 70 college football teams are clients. Every media entity, I believe, at some level uh, is getting information from us, and so you know as a data scientist, I get to go through. And I get to build custom metrics for teams, custom metrics for media. Uh, and then for us as a, you know, our, when we talk about our, you know, how we serve our consumer, uh, build stuff so that they, you know, they can play around with it in the fantasy space or the gambling space. Um, and so it's just a lot of fun. All right. So you touched on a little bit what you do there as a senior data scientist, but tell me a little bit more. So you're taking these grades, these uh, tags, whatever it is that PFF is generating and kind of running with it. What's your, what's your role to build on those? So most of the time, it's just to try to like, you know, answer questions that teams have. So a while back, there was a team, for example, who wanted to um, basically, they said, we, you know, we have to get rid of this player on our team and because he's too expensive, but we want to backfill in such a way that this player is inexpensive. That's money ball stuff. Inexpensive, but yeah, does yeah. the same thing. And, and so we, you know, go through and, you know, we build a system where we only look at clusters of plays that are similar to the cluster of plays uh, that this team runs in their, in their scheme. Uh, and then you can get a player who, you know, on our draft board, for example, would be a fourth round player, but to the team we're working with, they could be a third round player. Uh, and, you know, and that's the beauty of football is that there's not one, lo- you know, global maximum. There are a bunch of local maxima that, you know, teams, you know, the Shanahan maxima maximum is different than the, the Reed maximum, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you help teams sort of in a customized way, um, but you can also look at, you know, one of the things we've built and it, ma- it made its way on our website today with uh, PFF wins above replacement, which is basically how many wins a player's worth uh, over a practice squad player uh, as a means by which to sort of explore the idea of positional value, but also, uh, you know, put the put the player, you know, sort of in, in the currency of wins, uh, which is which is important. And that was something that, 
you know, we actually demoed to the teams and they gave us a bunch of good feedback and now we're giving it back a little bit to the consumers. But yeah, it's, it's a constant cycle of, you know, building content for the website, um, mm -hmm. building uh, tools for the, for the users to use both, uh, you know, uh, consumer users, but also team users. Uh, and then it's, you know, for me, it's a lot of research just about football. So I'll talk to people who are with teams or I'll talk to people in media and I'll just try to figure out, you know, I've, I've learned so much just from presenting something to a coach and him saying, you know, <clears throat> have, you, have you thought about this? Uh, and then I'll go back and build in. Sometimes it's crap and, and the majority of the time there's actually something to it. And so uh, my job is to suss out what that means. Uh, using our data and you know other data. What's the general reaction you get from when you're talking to you know coaches or management? Obviously, we know the general analytics versus scouting divide that exists to varying degrees. I guess we'd say what's the what's the general reaction though? That people like uh, on the football side, so to speak, see uh, all the data coming in and trying to look at things from a different perspective. How do they react? Yeah, I think our our genesis of being like a scouting company first is really helps, right? So our guys are are watching film and putting the grades on paper, um, you know, really helps because we're saying like, we're, look, we're trying to quantify what you think is, you know, what you believe is true in your head. Um, so I think we bridge the gap a little bit just from our very, you know, the the essence of our company. But then, yeah, I mean. <clears throat> what, what's nice is that over time we've learned a lot about football so we can come at yeah. a lot of these problems from the same with the same language um but yeah there's always these issues right where we take and you know prior to being at pff i was a mathematical biologist and it was the same thing like i would build these models about you know the you know environmental biology or uh ecology and i'd take it to a biology professor's office and we were speaking different languages so then we had to get you know on, on the same page first and and that's that's exactly the same thing with football. You have to approach, you have to tell the person, you know, whose subject matter expertise you're working with, like, look, I'm studying your hypotheses. I value what you think is true. If it's not true, you'd rather know than not know, you know. And 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 if you are true, I'm going to pat you on the back because you know most of the time these folks really do understand football. And you know, then we're just talking about a, a magnitude issue, like how important is this player versus whether this player is important to begin with. Uh, or, you know, how if, how much does it matter uh, that you have a scheme that's so much different than everybody else's? Well, it matters a lot or maybe it matter, doesn't matter at all and you should allocate resources to other places. So that, that's kind of where, you know, I think that there's a mutual respect there, even if uh, there always is, a, always is a little bit of hesitation from both sides. How else have you seen teams, you know, obviously I'm not looking to get state secrets out of this, but how have you seen teams take uh, this PFF data and kind of run with it and integrate it into what they do? Well, a lot of times it's just a way to codify information, you know, so they have they have the ability to they have the ability to go through, uh, you know, every single pass play when such and such happens, uh, you know, whereas before they had to, you know, watch an entire game and, and find the five plays that matter to them. Uh, so a lot of times it's just an efficiency thing, uh, which, you know, like it, it helps coaches do what they're good at as opposed to do things that are menial work for them. You know, so that's one way. Another way is to just sort of test their own stuff. You know, we, um, you know, we know that teams grade their own practices. They grade their own player. They they hire people to grade college players that they're considering for the draft. And so our stuff can be sort of a check for that. You know, there are some teams that fully have adopted our grading system as their own. So it just it just depends. But that's a that's really you know where it is. It's a secondary thing for some teams. It's a primary thing for other teams. And and what I think is its biggest use right now is just simply a way to 
uh, be more efficient uh, when you're trying to understand your own team or other teams. What else have you seen just interacting with different teams about how they adapt to this you know, analytics era, so to speak, on the field and or behind the scenes? Well, I, you know, I, I just think that some problems that have previously not been thought of are just being thought of. People give the Dallas Cowboys a lot of flack for signing Ezekiel Elliott to the deal that they signed him to. But I guarantee you, right. 10 years ago, he would have been signed months earlier than he was. Right. So they really went through yeah. the agonizing process of trying to decide, you know, like it was a foregone conclusion 10 years ago that a guy like Zeke was going to get the max deal. You know, and now mm-hmm. it takes a while. There are other you know, sort of things like Baker Mayfield, for example, like he. I don't think 10 years ago he would have been the first overall pick in the draft. And now, you know, they saw that, like, you know, as far as accuracy numbers, as far as, you know, what really matters in quarterback play, he stood out in college and, you know, he struggled this year, but he's had, you know, generally speaking, a pretty encouraging start to his career. Kyler Murray's another one where decades back he would have been too short to play the quarterback position, but people now are pretty wise to the fact that. If you don't have a quarterback, you you largely can't win in the NFL. And so, you know, the juice is worth the squeeze there. Even if he doesn't work out, it's still a good draft pick. All of those types of things. You know, we're seeing fourth downs be a thing, too. Uh, teams going for two when they're down eight. Teams going for two when they're up seven. Uh, teams going, you know, just going for fourth down on their own end of the field. All of these things. There are things you used to be able to take for granted in the NFL 10 years ago that you simply can't anymore. Yeah, it's been fun to watch this year. All the the little things. You're right. Um, I know just watching with people, family, friends who are less analytically inclined, and they see that that wait, they're going for two and they're up by seven, and it raises their eyebrows. But it also makes a lot of sense. Like it's fairly easy to explain, even in layman's terms. This is why that works, and it's it's been fun for me as a fan, at least, just seeing that happen this year. And these things kind of mainstream might be overstating it, but they're getting they're inching that direction. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, the NFL, I mean, we're talking about a a season, you know, we're talking about a a league where, you know, you look at Seattle, their point differential was something like five or 10. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what it was when the season was over, but they went 11 and five. In small samples, you get what you saw with the 2017 Eagles where, you know, they go for it and they run good on fourth downs and all of a sudden they're a Super Bowl champion, right? And and. Yeah, the Baltimore Ravens are the same thing. We saw the other side of variance when the playoffs hit, but it was right. uh, really fun to see, you know, a team really embrace giving themselves an edge. And it, it's the the it's still low-hanging fruit. Uh, a lot of teams still, you know, Pete Carroll, I talked about Seahawks, Pete Carroll will punt on fourth and one from the opponent's 37. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so if you're a team that refuses to do those things, you're going to have an edge. Yeah, it just makes the game more exciting too. You get more fourth downs, more of those two-point conversions that are kind of make and break situations. It's it's just a better thing. I want to shift uh, to kind of your career path. You know, you, so you went from uh, Division II football player, Minnesota State Moorhead, and went through the academic route to PFF now. So kind of trace that for me and just your progression in your career to get to where you are now. Yeah, it was it's strange. I mean, it's weird how things work <laughs> out, but you know, go in high school, I was very much into... Uh, sports and not really into school as much. Uh, and so um, my, my goal was to get a scholarship to play football. And I, you know, it was okay enough, I guess, to get a Division II scholarship to play somewhere. But that meant, you know, I had to go up north and play at Minnesota State. And that, you know, I, I did enjoy myself at the, there, but I wasn't the football player I think I was, you know, thought I was going to be. So I took up academics. I you know, really enjoyed them. And I majored in math at first because I thought it was going to be easy enough to uh, keep, you know, my football career number one and then my schooling number two. But eventually those things flipped. And, you know, when I was getting ready to graduate, 
I, I thought to myself, you know, I haven't I haven't fully taken advantage of what college has to offer. So I, I applied to a bunch of grad schools and the one I kind of wanted to stay in the Midwest. So I, I went to the University of Nebraska. And um, at the time, you know, we we're still sort of starting. So I, I, I started there at 08. And at the time, that was when sort of Moneyball was getting its legs. Yeah. Um, but I was, you know, still sort of like an applied math track. And, you know, football analytics, this was, it was like basically Brian Burke just writing articles on his website, nothing really right. else. And so, you know, I didn't really see a career path there. So I, I got really into basically mathematical biology, theoretical science, those types of things. Uh, and I, I studied essentially stochastic processes over function spaces in, in graduate school. And uh, I got my PhD in 2012. Uh, I was married, you know, I got married and my wife was from La Crosse, Wisconsin. There was a faculty position open there and I was one of a couple hundred applicants. I somehow finished second and luckily the person who, who finished ahead of me uh, got a job somewhere else. So I, I got a job there. Um, I was very much thinking I was going to stay in grad school for a little bit longer, but I started, I was a faculty member at 26 years old and I went there and um, I had all these designs for what my academic career was going to be. And Thankfully, or luckily, I guess, I like achieved a lot of them relatively quickly. Mm. Um, so I was probably halfway through my six years there thinking to myself, do I really want to be a 30-year-old tenured professor? You know, <laughs> and right. and so I started to reach out and, and do some consulting. And one of the and one of the things that I, I, I did was help PFF with some of their game charting. And then eventually I got access to their data and um, started to do, you know, articles that were a little bit more heavy on the prediction, heavy on the application of data science. And that got noticed, you know, by, by people relatively quickly. I, I transitioned more into like a full-time like consulting role. So I was just being paid to do, you know, projects for teams and, and media and things like that. And then in 2018, yeah, I moved to Cincinnati full-time and, and that's been basically my career path. You know, I, I do miss teaching. I do miss being a professor, but uh, I like, you know, football is a dream job. So you, you, I could not, uh, I couldn't uh, turn it down. I have to ask just out of pure curiosity, mathematical biology, can you explain that to someone like me in layman's terms? Like, what does that mean? What are you studying to go that track? Yeah. So one of the things like, for example, if you're trying to, one of the problems I worked on was essentially like, let's say that you want to keep a uh, a crop, you know, you, you have a, a, a farm and you want to keep your crops healthy, but you don't want to use pesticides. Um, mm -hmm. What is the maximum number of uh, natural pesticides to use before they overtake your, uh, before they overtake your, your actual crops? So like you, you know, sort of mini max problems there, um, being able to deal with noise because, you know, right now, you know, we're dealing with a lot of environmental stochasticity, right? Where, you know, the mm -hmm. temperature is rising, but not uniformly and not, you know, uh, not independently and identically distributed. So you have to be able to deal with a, a lot of noise and things like that. Um, another one was essentially looking at sort of like, you know, what are the environmental impacts of things like building wind turbines? What are the environmental impacts of, uh, you know, wind turbines were the one that I was doing for the, for the, the EPA and things like that. So uh, just, just all kinds of stuff, a lot of population dynamics and then a little bit of environmental biology. Yeah, that's interesting. So someone you know grows up in the Midwest, and I see the effects of a lot of that stuff. That's that's interesting to hear. So you came from the academic background, where obviously you're dealing with students and such. What do you say to aspiring data scientists in general, like student who's looking to get into the field, and then more specifically to those interested in kind of going a sports route? Yeah, well, I think what's cool now is that like there are opportunities, you know, uh, to do things that you know weren't afforded to me when I was younger. 
I don't think that you need to get a PhD in math to be a data scientist at a company like PFF. I don't think that you need, you know, you know, there are all, there are statisticians that are working for teams that are either just bachelor students or master students. Um, you know, I think my PhD really helps me learn things quickly. Um, but it's not a, you know, the barriers to entry are lower than in academia. So I think that that's great. I think that there are opportunities to do work publicly. Uh, you know, I wasn't certainly one of those people because when I was in the academic world, you either publish papers to get better jobs or to keep your own job, get tenure and things like that, or you didn't and you didn't, right? And so for me, right. I was like, well, I, if I'm going to publish, you know, work in, in football, I want to be with a, a, a reputable place like PFF. Um, so I didn't do any public work prior to, uh, you know, joining up with the company, but that's been a, a way for a lot of people, uh, you know, even people that we've hired here at PFF to, to make a name for themselves. Uh, and I think that's terrific. I think social media has been a, a great influence on the football community. Um, I know it can get toxic at times, but it, it's, it's a great place to sort of like weed out your bad ideas and, and, and accentuate your good ones. For me, my, my piece of advice is always, um, you know, learn as much math as you think you need and, and probably a little bit more uh, for sure. Uh, there are a lot of things that I learned in undergrad that I never you know, used in my research career that I come back to you know, using now. Um, and then wherever you go, subject matter expertise is essential. So, you know, I had to learn a ton of like my Ph.D. thesis, like I think a third of it was just writing out basically primary research in the field of biology that I studied. And, mm -hmm. you know, that takes a lot of work. Football, you know, luckily for me, I'm a football junkie. So I've, I've been watching football and, and reading about it since I was a kid. So it's not too bad. But, you know, if you're in another field, the subject matter expertise is essential and takes time to learn. So uh, that that's kind of, you know, my my advice is just to learn a lot of math and, and be you know relatively intimately related with the, the subject matter. So you've touched on this a couple of times in different questions about how your academic background, just kind of, I guess, the rigor of all that and how it's helpful as you apply it to your job. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Just tell me, like, what is that? How does the academic stuff really prepare you for what you're doing now, even though it may not be essential to the extent that you did it, as you said, but how does you take the stuff from the academic background and apply it to uh, the data scientist role now? For me, it's always, um, you know, I think about the time when I was a, I was in my fourth year teaching at U, UWL and I, um, I was asked to teach Calc 3 and by just by luck or by hook or by crook or some reason, I never used half of that material since the time I learned it uh, in 2005 mm -hmm. as, a, as a freshman in college. Um, so, um, but I thought, I thought, to, you know, I was like, okay, I'm a little nervous here, but I, if I can stay a day or two ahead of the students, I'll be fine. And <laughs> And when I when I finished that class, it, it came to me that, that that's what a PhD is for. A PhD is to be able because I didn't remember a great deal of that stuff, but I did fine. I did fine as teaching it. It was like right. well, that's like what real life is. Like real life is being able to assimilate information quickly so that you can do a job. And you know, my PhD was it, because I had learned things that were a lot tougher than Calc They were just different. And so then being able to sort of apply down and be like, okay. Uh, oh, yeah, that's what that is. And it's a lot like this. And it's a lot like that. Being able to relate material, it gets so essential. And 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 going through the rigors of a PhD is just like that. You learn something so intimately that when you switch fields, as I did, or or you, you know, do something tangential, that that ability to dive deeply into something and to learn it good enough to do a job is you maintain that. No, that's interesting. It reminds me of when I was at ESPN, I'd work on World Cups and there's obviously 32 teams and you read as much and absorb as much and study as much as you can about all these teams. And then 
before they play a game and you really that's when you have to call back to all that information and bring it back and review it and like you said just like stay a day or two ahead of everybody else so you can you know make sure the producers have the right information you're telling the right stories and all that so yeah that's an an interesting uh, way of looking at it i like that all right i want to wrap things up here we kind of run through our playing favorite segment so i'm going to throw out some random questions get your input on that so tell me what your favorite number is and why it's not favorite stat like your favorite number your lucky number growing up 17 because well i was born on january 17th uh, mm-hmm. and that, and then I came across, there was always like these players that had 17 that I thought were like always luckier than they should have been. So I kind of like, I can't <laughs> think of any off the top of my head, but like, uh, it's kind of why I like 17. Who's your favorite player uh, growing up in Minnesota? Is it uh, someone from the Minnesota sports world? Yeah. Chris, Chris Carter was easily, I, in, in a bad beat, I moved here two days after he like had visited the office here at PFF. Oh. So he, he retweeted one of my articles once, which I think is like, my you know pinnacle of my you know uh, professional life so far but uh-huh. uh yeah he was my favorite player i was moss came a little bit later in my you know my youth but chris carter yep. was sort of that first player where i was like i want to be that player all right favorite game that you participated in so as a player in high school college favorite one of those oh uh, that's a great one um i think just because it, it helped, it, it, it's a fun story for like my wife's friends and stuff. In high school, I my my high school basketball team played in the third place game in the state tournament, and we played Hopkins High School. And I was kind of like the twelfth player on our team. I got a, I got in the game in mid middle of the second half, and I guarded uh, Chris Humphreys for about three possessions. Mm. And uh, and you know he went on to later marry Kim Kardashian. Right. Uh, so, so my, my wife's friends know who he is and, you know, he was like the best player at Minnesota high school basketball at the time. Yeah. So you, you get a little cred with people on the sports side and the non-sports side for that one, right? That's right. It's favorite sporting event you've been to just as a fan. Uh, I think it has to be this past weekend. Uh, I've yeah. been to two playoff games in the NFL prior, um, you know, I did, I did go to the first game that's when Stefan Marbury got traded from the. Timberwolves to the Nets, and he came back his first game, and they booed him every single time he got the ball. That was pretty uh, remarkable. But yeah. no, just watching the Kansas City faithful see their team go to the Super Bowl for the first time in 50 years was uh, well, I'll probably never forget that. That's pretty cool. And finally, favorite kind of I call it a how did I get here moment or a wow moment that you've had with your job. You talked about you know like Chris Carter re- retweeting you. It's a pretty cool uh, professional moment. A favorite one of those moments where you just find yourself in a place that you may not have expected or believed professionally. Peter King of Sports Illustrated is somebody who I've um, admired for a long time. I used to read Sports mm-hmm. Illustrated religiously as a kid, uh, watched all their videos and everything. And a couple Sundays ago, he called me to ask me what I thought about uh, a game, <laughs> like what was going to happen and uh, what I what I thought the storylines were. And, I, you know, at the time, you're always like, you never reflect on those things. But like after I hung up, I was like, holy crap, that was, you know, that this person <laughs> right. knows a lot more about football uh, asked me what I think. And, and that was certainly a, a, a watershed moment for me. So Nice. Pretty cool. That's a good story to end with. So Eric Eager, Senior Data Scientist at Pro Football Focus. Thank you for joining us here on Expected Value. Thanks for having me. Back in the True Media Studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again to Eric Eager, Senior Data Scientist at Pro Football Focus, for joining us on the show. You can follow him on Twitter at PFF underscore Eric. I'm joined now by True Media's Albert Larcata for some reaction to this interview. Albert, we've worked with PFF for several years here at True Media. What did you think of Eric's interview? 
Yeah, that was great. Eric has a really interesting background, obviously, moving from academia to, to PFF. Um, yeah, I, I'd say one of the great things PFF has done over the years is just opened up a wave of new ways for analysts and writers to improve the football work that they were already doing. On the analyst side, if you look back at a lot of the more advanced analysis done, like in the early 2010s, almost like the pre-Brian Burke era, if you will, you, you'll find a lot of analyses done using pro football references approximate value metric, mm-hmm. which I think even the creators of would tell you is a pretty crude metric that was designed in a time, uh, you know, more for working with not play-by-play data. Um, right. But PFF grades are clearly an improvement on that. And so any kind of player evaluation research done on, you know, draft, free agency, and so on, all of that can be based on a much improved player value metric. So that's one thing they've, they've done uh, that's helped a lot. And then maybe more importantly, on the more general content side, their grades are a great sanity check tool. A, a great example mm-hmm. from earlier this week was when uh, Xavier Rhodes, the Vikings cornerback, was selected as a Pro Bowl replacement, despite having one of the worst cornerback seasons in the league, according to PFF grades. If that would have happened in, whatever, 2005, in the pre-PFF era, I'm pretty certain the vast majority of people watching wouldn't have thought twice about Rhodes making the Pro Bowl. You know, he's a fairly big name. I think he was a first-round pick. He was on a good team. Yep. But now, just with that single number PFF offers, the fact that he was graded so poorly, we can quantify really how silly of a choice that was. Yeah. So that's something they've just added to the sort of football world that was not there before them. It reminded me of something we encountered when we were at ESPN working on QBR, how like these metrics are not the end all. It's not, this is a player rating, done. The more interesting thing is, okay, well, why is that the case? You know, why is this guy's QBR so good or so bad? What makes him the difference? Why is his grade, you know, what does Rhodes do well? What does he not do well? Can we, whether it's quantify it, can we find video of it? Can we ask a scout or a coach about it? Like it just opens it up to so many more questions that you can ask to try and get at something that's interesting and valuable to teams, to media, to fans, to whomever. And then I think one thing I was interested in was what he talked about how he found parallels, as strange as it sounds, between his work in mathematical biology and what he does now. Just how important it is to be able to distill data, to communicate it clearly, to take feedback and improve both of those things. And these are skills that are applicable and necessary in just about any field. I mean, I have a friend who's an analyst in the federal government, and we would always talk about how his job and my ESPN, ESPN job were very similar. Obviously, very different fields, different levels of importance. What both of us were doing was trying to take this information and get it into you know a nice you know, snackable, if you will, to use a buzzword, pieces of content to go on TV or in his case to go into a brief or something along those lines. And this trend we've also seen of teams hiring people like this. So there was a soccer club, I think in England this week, that had a job listing for basically an analytics translator. So they're looking for someone who probably had a playing background and also could understand these numbers and work at getting them to players. We've seen baseball teams hiring you know, directors of run prevention or run production who are, tend to be you know, ex-players or guys straight out of the minors or something who can connect to the players and also find the information that they need, the players want to need, and kind of communicate with all of them uh, at their level more easily. So it's an interesting uh, job field and market that's kind of opening up. And regardless of which you know side, so to speak, that you're on, it's important to be able to understand the other side. And there's also this spot coming up right in the middle that kind of overlaps and does both. All right. Thanks, Albert. And thanks again to PFF's Eric Eager for joining us here on the show. 
Feedback and guest suggestions are always welcome via Twitter at True Media Sports or me at Paul Carr. You can email the show expectedvalue at truemedianetworks.com as well. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. That helps us continue to grow. More football talk next week as we look ahead to the Niners and Chiefs in Super Bowl 54. On behalf of Albert Larcata and everyone here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. Mm-hmm.